Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, a graduate school professor, a former seminary president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Thanks everyone for joining us today. So in the wake of several, gosh, just heart-wrenching mass shootings that have occurred recently, coupled with the heartbreak have been a lot of prescient questions, right? Like questions like, why does this keep happening? How could this have been avoided? How can we make sure that this does not become a normal part of the American landscape? Because the sad reality is that school shootings are unique to the United States. And we near the top of the international list when it comes to mass shootings per capita. But while mass shootings are, everybody would agree, 100% devastating, the United States is completely polarized on its views about gun control. So in today's conversation, I hope to, as every week, pick Jim's brain on what is happening in our culture and our contemporary thinking that essentially enables horrors like this to take place. Because there seems to be contradictory values at hand that have been leading to quite quite frankly, devastating results. And although mass shootings have been on our country's radar for quite a while, the reforms that have been put into place, if perhaps they are preventing a large number of shootings, have not certainly eliminated them. So let's kick this off by perhaps, Jim, from your study of culture, what are some factors that you've noticed that you think is creating an atmosphere in the U.S. in which someone would feel as if participating in a mass shooting is the best or perhaps the only way to solve their problem or to achieve the results that they seek. Yeah. And you know, the time we're filming this, I, I just, let me go ahead and just confess at the very beginning, I'm, I'm not in a good place. <laughs> I'm heart sick um, with the most recent, which was 19 young elementary school age kids and two teachers and, and then shortly after that, the husband of one of those teachers, after giving flowers at the funeral, died of a heart attack, as some said, just of grief. It, it, I'm just um, anyway, let, let's just go ahead and, and state the obvious. I mean, a lot of people say, well, why in the United States? Let's go ahead and, and be clear. This happens in other countries. There are mass shootings in other countries, um, and it's growing across the globe. It's not something just in the United States. It's more pronounced in the United States. Let's be honest about that, too, but it is happening in other places. Um, and I think that uh, regardless of where you stand on all things that we're going to be talking about, you, you would be hard-pressed to say that the availability of guns in the United States don't play a part. Um, and we have some of the loosest, most liberal laws about gun ownership, gun purchasing in the civilized world. We do. And more guns are owned by people in America than I think any other country in the world. Um, and so, you know, if you have more guns, you're going to have more shootings, you're gonna have more knives, you're gonna have more stabbings, and you're gonna have, you know, it's just, it's just almost a, a game of statistics. I think another thing that's causing a, a lot, and again, there's so many aspects of this that um, you could explore each one of them, uh, their own podcast, but there's a lot of radicalization going on uh, through the internet that didn't exist 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, you have, um, uh, for example, uh, a recent shooting that was uh, motivated by um, 
or many of the recent shootings have been have been had radicalized teachings on the front end. They posted things either, you know, that were racist in nature, um, and uh, they had given themselves over to certain conspiracy theories and ideas and such. And so we're used to radicalization in terms of, like for example, people being radicalized in terms of the Muslim faith that led to things like 9/11 online but uh equally uh strong and maybe even more at this particular moment is a radicalization of uh, young teenage mostly men uh toward uh hate and racism and violence and feeling like that's the only answer is to eliminate people um and so um and I think, too, another dynamic, and again, all of these are huge issues that we could explore, but it's a cultural glorification of some of these shooters. And there is. There's a cultural glorification in certain sectors of these shooters. And when you go online to some of these radicalized sites, they make some of the people who either blew up this, this federal building or who do this or do this almost like the folk heroes of the movement of that particular political persuasion. I think other things that factor into this is that um, uh, bullying both online and in person creates a frustration level where some of these people don't know how else to react, don't know what to do with all their feelings except to resort to violence. And, and, and the online bullying where you can never escape it is of such a nature that didn't exist 20 years ago either. And so, or, or such. And so you have that, you have the breakdown of home life and, and, and um, that is strong uh, that I think adds to this. And then of course, let's not miss the most important ingredient and dynamic, which is um, evil, just the presence of evil and, and our world seemingly becoming increasingly given over to evil and evil's reign. And so all of these things, when you look at it from a cultural standpoint are factors. Related to this, one area of reform that almost unanimously Americans agree with is to require comprehensive background checks. So for anyone wishing to purchase a firearm, and yet I think most would argue that, sure, that is a positive necessary step, but that's not really where reform needs to begin. And so based on what you just shared, where do you think it should start? Well, I, you know, I'm no, I'm no gun control expert, and I don't uh, pretend to be. I, I'm, a, I'm a cultural observer, and 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 from that perspective, and from the social sciences, there's some things that I, I would say. Um, I think that the the heart of the matter is is the home, and the heart. I I I, I believe firmly in those two things. I'm going to add to that though, but I mean the home. Um, you know, a stable home life, a strong home life, a loving home life, an affirming home life, a, a home life where, where Christ is presented and, 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 and spiritual faith nurtured um, is, is decisive. I also feel like, um, and, and that person having a community of people around them, reinforcing those things. And then the heart, obviously, I mean, you, 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 you cannot walk away from these mass shootings and explosions and bombs and, and, and violence without just seeing that, that this is, there is evil in a heart. There is a callousness toward other human beings. There's a wickedness there. There's, a, there's an inability to, to have a conscience that is seared. And so I think that we just have to, to own that there is kind of a social aspect largely related to home life. And, and, and then second, a very divine, a very a strong spiritual perspective in terms of the human heart. Um, I will say, though, on top of that reform, um, and I think there's large support for this, I mean, massive support for um, 
just doing something about how it is just so easy to get a gun by someone who shouldn't have a gun. Mm. And I think that's something that everybody can agree on. It isn't about revoking the second amendment, at least from my perspective, we'll talk about that more in a moment. Um, and it's, it's like, okay, you've got, you've got someone who is 18 years old. Okay. And they're able to get a high capacity rifle and buy 350 rounds of ammunition. That 18 year old cannot buy alcohol. That 18 year old cannot purchase cigarettes, but they can buy an AR 15 style rifle. And like I said, hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Most would look at that and say, you know, even just moving it from 18 to 21, um, making it just, you know, a little bit easier, particularly when there's so much, and let's, and again, I don't mean it's in a condescending way, but there's so much immaturity. I mean, an 18 year old is arguably what halfway through high school. I mean, you know, their senior year, I mean, there's just not a maturity there uh, for some of these things, but back to the home in most cases, you know, it's not just a, a home life that's strong, but it's a home life that's owning the proper handling of guns. One of the things that uh, startled me in my own research on this is that uh, in most cases, these shooters got their gun from their own home. And so something as simple as just store your gun safely, parents, um, is, is, can be decisive. Hmm. Well, you mentioned the Second Amendment. So I, I've got to ask a couple of follow-up questions related to that then, because um, the Second Amendment, certainly, it, it provides citizens the right to protect themselves and their country against its enemies. But I wonder how much the Second Amendment comes into play when self-defense is not in view, because in mass shooting situations, it's an offensive um, act. So do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there's obviously far more to owning a gun than, than self-defense. There's also uh, hunting and recreation and sport and things of that nature. I think the Second Amendment and the framers of it had had in mind not wanting there to be a militia that was, you know, not allowed or being able to protect yourself or just be able to, you know, rise up against tyranny. Um, but, and, and I, but before I talk about the second amendment, let me, let me just do full disclosure, which, you know, you're very insistent on <laughs> and I want to be too. Um, uh, I support the second amendment. I do not believe in, in abolishing it. Uh, I'm, I believe there's nothing in me that wants to, you know, I have no problem with the second amendment. Uh, I own guns and I also own guns. I'm a gun owner. Uh, so that, you know, I just wanted to get that out there. Um, I have personal thoughts though, um, about, um, second amendment issues. And that is, is that, uh, I, I go back to something that Justin Antonin Scalia said, you know, one of the most conservative Supreme court justices and, and one of the most brilliant, and, um, and he was certainly a supporter of the Second Amendment, but he said something once, wrote something in an opinion once that I thought was, was apt and, and uh, one that I would hold to. Uh, he said, it's not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever for whatever purpose. Mm. I agree. Mm. I agree. So at the very least, I'm, I'm in support of, and again, this is personal and I don't want to leave our cultural kind of analysis, but just as an individual, I would be very much in favor of red flag background checks. Um, and I don't really have a need for there to be a wide availability of assault weapons to be a robust supporter of the Second Amendment. 
Um, certainly red flag background checks, which is where when they do a background check, they see something there that makes them wait. You know, okay, there's, there's something here that we need to investigate. Why would you not do that? Um, and why would there be different kind of guidelines for gun control, like depending upon whether you buy it in a store or buy it at a gun, you know, uh, gun show or something like that. And so I, I think that there's, there's common sense tightening up here that, that really, I would think, whether you own guns, don't own guns, whether you support Second Amendment, don't support Second Amendment, this is just some common sense stuff. And again, and I'm, I'm speaking as someone who supports the Second Amendment and owns guns. And I think that there's personally, there's some basic common sense stuff we can do to, to tighten up gun control. Well, going back to what you were quoting from Scalia, there, there seems to be this tension between wanting to maintain the right to have firearms in situations that do ne necessitate them versus giving people access to firearms in, in situations that certainly do not necessitate them. And I think it is that tension that's made it very difficult in or that's essentially halted necessary reforms and have allowed more mass shootings to take place. And it seems like if we're thinking of this from a Christian worldview, it's, it might seem at first glance that scripture is completely silent on this. But so I'm curious, like, do you have any recommendations as is the Bible silent on this? Can, can we go to it and find any helpful information here? Well, if you're a Christ follower, you are called to care for the oppressed. Uh, you're called to care for the hurting and you're called to care for and to support and to work for in seeking justice. Those are non-negotiables for any Christ follower. And we are called to work for the oppressed and to work for the hurting and to care about and seek justice, even at personal sacrifice. So even if it costs me something, even if it infringes on something in my life, I am to stand for these things, work for these things, even at personal cost. And so I think there should be, so that's first. And I think, so a lot of it, when it's just all about my freedom, what I get to do and what I want to do for the Christian, that's never been our worldview. It, our, our worldview has always been, where do I need to appropriately die to myself for others? Okay. And, so it's, and so that's one thing that I would say is germane to this issue. Um, Second thing that I would say is germane is that I think there should be similarities to um, the pro-life movement and issues related to gun violence. Uh, Christians very much believe in the sanctity of human life. Uh, I just don't see us being that way from cradle to grave. I don't see it being from, you know, the womb to the end. Um, and so we've had talks uh, had a session on abortion and sanctity of human life, and we can reference those in the show notes because I think that there is a relevant relevant issue there. But um, let's let's be quite frank. We we are appalled at the number of particularly late trimester abortions there are in the United States, and in uh, second and third trimester, and 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 many Christians grieve over that. Um, well, forty thousand deaths occurred last year due to gun violence. Forty thousand gun violence. Okay, every death is, is, is a, a question of, you know, affects those of us who care about the sanctity of human life. And so what can we do? Well, how can we approach that with that same level of concern for human life? Um, and so I think that we need to have a comprehensive, holistic understanding of 
trying to protect life. And uh, regardless of where you come out on various legislative issues or parameters, um, the Christian needs to approach gun violence through that lens because we're Christians. Yeah, I want to chase that a bit because I, I've heard a lot recently, and I, I can't say that I don't agree with this, is that it can feel so dissatisfying sometimes in the wake of a tragedy like that to hear just a Christian response of, oh, well, I'll pray for you. Like, is that if that's the, the, the answer, that's that's the only response that we can give. I'm, I'm not saying that prayer is not important. I think prayer is undoubtedly the most important thing that we can do, but perhaps it's not the only thing we can do. I think that's what you were suggesting. So how might, well, first of all, how might we need to rethink prayer in order to provide a more helpful response? Um, you know, I don't plug many books, but there's a book that's relevant here simply because its title begs to your question. It was written by a Christian woman named Taylor Schumann, and it's called When Thoughts and Prayers Are Not Enough. And she herself was a victim and a survivor of gun violence. And, um, and a, a little book by InterVarsity Press, good book. Um, and, and, and I think that what we can say as Christians is, and some of this comes from uh, her, what she writes in that book, which I thought was bringing together a lot of good, good thinking on this, is that um, you know, we, we believe in the power of prayer. I mean, we absolutely believe in the power of prayer, which is, which is why, though, using it as a trivialized soundbite um, is demeaning and belittling. Mm. I mean, if the more you believe in prayer, the real sheer power of that and potency of that, the more a trite soundbite trolling off your lips when you're not even going to bother to pray, you're just saying that mm. is, is, is belittling. So yes, pray. But what is the goal of prayer? I mean, what, what is the goal? of The goal of prayer is to get up off your knees and do something. Is to get up off your knees, changed, having spent time with the living God and communing and conversing with him. And to do something as a result of the prayer. If, if I walk away from prayer unaffected, if I walk away from prayer unmoved, if I walk away from prayer unchallenged to act toward what I prayed about, um, you know, it's like, Father, uh, my friend Alexis needs a hundred dollars and, and I know that she needs that for her gas bill. And so I'm praying that you give her that $100. Well, uh, what if I get up off my knees and I realize, well, I have a hundred dollars that I could give her and maybe I'm to be the answer to that prayer. Have I even thought about that? Yeah. That's the way prayer in many ways should interact with our lives. So prayer is where we start, but it's not where we finish. And I think that that's why so many have found just thoughts and prayers, just kind of the way we say it off of our lips, um, insufficient when, when there's so much that in many people's minds can and should be done, or at least um, articulated and voiced. Mm. Um, I want to speak a little bit about um, school shootings or ask you a bit about that just in in light of the recent events but because I know that I myself am a parent of school-aged children and I know how absolutely terrifying it is to consider sending your child to school not knowing if they're going to come back quite frankly and of course statistically it's not likely that my child or your child is going to be the victim of a school shooting but do you think parents should be asking themselves any questions in particular related to school choice, perhaps, or if there are any strategic questions or conversations, rather, that parents should be having with their kids in light of this topic? We should have a podcast on school choice. 
Okay, <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> I think there's a lot of questions there that that parents have about public school versus private school versus charter school versus Christian school versus homeschooling and then all aspects of that. And I think that would be, and I think that gun violence can be a part of that conversation along with a lot of other things. So uh, make a note. Jotting it down. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to, so I'm going to dodge that part of it. Okay. Um, but I do think that they're very much needs to be engaged by parents with their children. In fact, uh, Shortly after this, and we've done this before, but after this most recent one, we um, uh, met kids, the children's ministry of, of Mac uh, sent out, I thought, some wonderful links to parents helping them know how to talk to their children in age appropriate ways and uh, breaking it down into various age groups, the kinds of questions a child will ask, how to answer those. We'll put those links in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, so I, I think that the key though, when parents do engage this and they do need to engage it is to tailor it to their child's age, uh, and the, um, maturity of your child and, and also to address their questions and their emotions and their fears and help them process things. Um, and always prioritizing hope, prioritizing healing. Uh, talking about the good in people and the good in this world, and also steering them continually back toward God. And so these, these kinds of simple conversations where you, that you have with children can be decisive. Yeah. Um, kind of related to this, something that I've always admired about the early church is how they did not let the standards of the world dictate the standards of the church. And specifically, I'm thinking of how, um, you know, when Paul was writing, uh, slavery was a common practice in Roman society, but with, with regards to the church, he, you know, set, definitely set the standard based on Jesus's standard to treat people within the church. We, we were all going to treat each other as equals, regardless of what was happening outside of, you know, the doors of the community of the church. So um, I'm just wondering, you know, regardless of what ends up happening with legislation, how do you think that the modern church needs to create or protect a healthier culture within related to violence? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, and I think that one of the things that all communities of faith should do is to say, okay, regardless of what the world does, regardless of what is currently law or not law, how should we as a community of faith act? Mm -hmm. What should we model? What should we do and be as it relates to um, guns and gun violence and, and, and response to gun violence and all these kinds of things. And so um, what comes to mind are things like, okay, just, just as individuals who, uh, let's start with the home. Uh, I, I mentioned safe storage. I, 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 I can't stress that enough that, that it's, 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 I don't know if any parent, hopefully, <laughs> but I, don't, I don't know of a parent that would have a loaded Glock by where a child could get it in a heartbeat and pull the trigger and accidentally shoot themselves or shoot someone else. You would, you would store it. You'd, you'd lock it up. Okay. Why do you stop doing that when they're 12 or 14? When they're when, smarter. <laughs> when they're smarter and also there's other stuff going on and you just, you know, so I would say that's common sense. I would say that the church needs to care for victims and their families. It's, it's, and, and, and let me say beyond the news cycle, mm. really care for victims and their families. Um, as a, as a pastor, as someone who is, who has been by the side of grieving families far more than 
I would ever want anyone else to have to go through. Um, you know, or, I mean, I mean, they're the ones grieving, but I mean, I just, I have a ringside seat that I, I wouldn't wish on anyone. But anyway, my point is, is that I know from, from experience that uh, people are often in a state or an extreme grief, but they're also in a state of shock. You know, those days following a death, particularly a sudden death and the week and stuff. And so it's not, it, it's, it's, it's after the funeral, they need people. And it's, it's, it's circling back around three, four, six weeks. How are you? And, and how can I serve you? And, and that, that may be when they need the meal the most. And, you know, we just, we're so good at pouncing on the moment when I think with grief, the moment most acute is often after the fact later. I mean, so care for victims and families. I think community care support is, is huge. Financial giving is, is huge. Um, and, um, and it's not just like, for example, there was a GoFundMe account set up for the children of the of the two people, the the teacher that was killed recently, and and also um, the the and her husband who died a couple of days later. And there was massive outpouring of financial support for those children, and well, there should have been. But um, you know, there were there were there was a lot of families affected by that, and a lot of families lose a spouse or a main breadwinner, and and the financial repercussions are are acute. And so, just financial giving and and violence, and of course, violence prevention, you know, just just what's involved in in, in that. And I think that very few churches speak out on violence, um, and and I think it begins with speaking out about violence in the home, yeah. uh, spouse abuse. I think it talks about violence and 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 bullying and and and. And um, just, uh, you know, the Christian community should not ever uh, model violence as a reaction, much less anger, but, but restraint and peace and such. Um, everything I've just mentioned, none of it's political. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's being a community of faith. And so, uh, and then, but when it does become political, which most, so many things do. And, and again, you and I are not trying to be political in this podcast on this issue, um, we're trying to look at it culturally, even though we have opinions and and on um, various things. But um, but when it comes to the political ramifications, when it comes to the political uh, machinations of all these things, I, I'll say what I've said. I feel like a thousand times. Enter into it as a Christian first and politically aligned second. Uh, enter it as a Christian first and a Democrat second or a Republican second or whatever you might consider yourself to be. Because guns, like so many other issues, it's such a hot button issue. It's so volatile. It's so cultural. It's, it's so, you know, part of like your identity almost for some people. And it's just the way you were raised or it's what you mean, what it means to be free or all these different kinds of things can all be projected onto this. And so it's easy to, to kind of lose um, rational thinking and lose dispassionate thinking when it comes to the political process. And so that you, 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 you become aligned to a particular agenda or lobby or party first, and then your Christian faith second, when your Christian faith might say some things that you may not even like you know, about what you should think or do. Yeah. And so I, I do think that that would be when we do enter the political realm to remember to, to maintain our Christian identity first and foremost, and we navigate the waters that way and not simply through some type of political agenda. Mm. I think that's so wonderfully said. And I think the only other thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, never these kind of shootings take place. I always think through like, 
you know, as a church, we should be such the greatest proponents of hope. You know, I feel like hopelessness is at the root of so many of these, you know, whether it's bullying or, you know, even with polarized agendas of like, if you only knew that, yes, evil is so present, but there is a God who is even more, you know, so much more powerful and so much more present. So um, just for the church to be that lighthouse, I think, in the really dark places of anybody's life would be. Well, if that that's makes a circle back, by the way, that was beautifully said. I, I hate to even say anything because that would have been the note to have ended on <laughs> what you just said. But since I uh, stupidly interrupted, let me just say that I think that that um, that I think that that brings us so full circle to what we were talking about earlier. Whereas, you know, if the heart of this issue uh, is evil, there's only one way to address the evil in someone's heart and the frustration and 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 acting it out in that way. And that's to have someone's deepest needs intersected by, by Christ, and 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 where where evil is defeated, in yeah. essence, and yeah. and I think that that's and there's only one defeat of evil. There's only one way to defeat evil, and and as much as good, there's a place for good legislation. You can't legislate away evil, and 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 the only the only way is is the the resurrection of the human heart, mm-hmm. and there's only one power on this planet that can do that, and that's Jesus. Yes. Yeah, as you said, also beautifully said. <laughs> um, well, gosh, um, we're, I think, at running out of time here. And so, but if anything, we've already have several other ideas for hopefully future podcasts that will support this conversation. So um, stay tuned for those. But in the meantime, as always, thank you for taking the time to listen this week. Thank you for listening to this week's installment of the Church and Culture Podcast with Dr. James White. We hope it was not only informative, but challenging and the start to an ongoing conversation. To stay up to date with all the latest, check out the daily headline news and subscribe to the Church and Culture blog, all found at churchandculture.org. You can even keep up with Jim by following him on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at James Emery White. We hope you'll join us next week. Goodbye for now.